Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? We're going to continue the tree conservation story, but today we're going to focus on elms. And joining us from the Northern Research Station is Dr. Leela Pinchot to talk about all of her work on American elm conservation. Now, if you're like me, you grew up in an area where there were streets named Elmwood or Elm Street, only there are no elms there. Well, you're going to learn why there are no elms there and what is being done to make sure that one day we can return elms to everywhere from the human environment all the way out into the forests themselves. But I'm not going to do any more justice to this in the intro, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Pinchot. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Leela Pincho, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you today, but first, let's start off with who you are. Tell us a little bit about your background. Hi. Yeah, it's great to be here. Let's see. Well, I um, I don't know. Who am I? <laughs> I, <laughs> I grew up in Connecticut. I guess that's a good place to start, but also um, back and forth to Pennsylvania when my parents divorced, and that's important because I spent a lot of my youth running around the wilds, the woods of Pennsylvania, where I fell in love with plants and trees and um, nature in general. From there, I studied biology at Oberlin College in Ohio, where I didn't expect to come back to, but (laughs) fast forward, we'll get to that. I did end up back in Ohio. So my father is a forester of sorts, and clearly that had a big impact on um, my career choice and (laughs) interest in trees in general. And we have this property in Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania. And I remember when I was in high school, he took me out to a big American chestnut tree that we have on the property at the time, probably 10 inches in diameter, which for chestnut is pretty big given the blight. Um, And that, that really stuck with me. Um, And later while I was in college, uh, one winter I interned for Dr. Sandra Anagnostakis at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. She's this wonderful mycologist who has been studying chestnut for many years now and is just a, a great scientist. And she taught me all about chestnut blight, uh, how to culture it, which is really fun. Oh, wow. She taught me about planting chestnut, tending it, pollinating it. I was up. You know, 60 feet in the air pollinating chestnut with her, Jeez. which again was fun. Lots <laughs> of good memories from that experience. And so from those two experiences, I was kind of hooked in the tree restoration world, got my degree in biology, worked for a couple of years, uh, and then got a master's at the Yale School of Forestry. And from that area, just kind of made sense. And while I was there, I worked for the American Chestnut Foundation, nice. wonderful organization, they do a lot of great work. And then once I graduated, I left that position to pursue a PhD at the University of Tennessee, where I studied reintroducing American chestnut to the forest. Let's see, from there, I worked for a couple of years. And then this amazing position with a Northern Research Station opened up to study American chestnut and American elm. And I was extraordinarily lucky in getting that position. So I Moved my family back out to Ohio, <laughs> uh, and here I am in central Ohio in a really wonderful job. Wow. 
That is great and so exciting to hear that really outside of just nature, trees have kind of been the center of your focus for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, they're, they're all around us. They're hard to ignore. They're fascinating. (laughs) And I think just that story, you know, for both chestnut, for elm, for so many species, unfortunately now, you know, that we have caused the destruction of these species and it's just very compelling to want to try to help them. Yeah. So I would guess aside from just caring about trees and loving being in the forest and, and just being surrounded by these organisms, the conservation bent has always been a part of it. And whether you realized it or not, you were going to do what you could to have an impact on that at some point. Uh, you know, and now you've made a career out of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really it's a dream job. I feel so lucky. (laughs) to do what I do. <laughs> it sounds like you have really made uh, the the application of your expertise, you know, stretch that extra mile to actually doing something for these forests. Yeah. I mean, that's my motivation. To be honest, I was never really fascinated by basic science. Um, I mean, I understand the importance of it, but I was always and still feel very driven by the need to repair things that we've broken. So absolutely, that's that's what gets me really excited. And so you worked with the chestnut, and we've had a few people on talking about chestnut blight and and what it's done to the chestnut trees and some of the work that's being done to kind of combat that. But elms is another thing entirely, and it's one of those things I grew up kind of getting hints of here and there. You know, you see Elmwood or Elm Street. There's no elms there anymore. Something else happened, but, you know, I love the chestnut. I would never downplay the attention it's gotten. Elms have gotten some of that, but not nearly the degree that the chestnuts have gotten. Would you say that's it's a, a solid assessment to some extent? I think currently, yeah, modern day that that's that's accurate. I mean, chestnuts. You know, everyone has a chestnut story. It's <laughs> it's a very romanticized species, and I say that lovingly because it's my right. first tree love. Um, <laughs> elm. You know, I th- I think. People still get pretty nostalgic about elm, but it's the elms that were in cities and towns. It's not mm. the you know elms in natural areas that people uh, remember losing. So elm, of course, was like you mentioned. There's an elm city in pretty much every city and town across the United States, even outside the natural range of the species, because it was so beloved in these areas and planted just so extensively. Mm. And then, of course, about 1930, the Dutch elm disease was introduced. And this is a fungal pathogen like chestnut blight. Hmm. But unlike chestnut blight, it requires an insect vector, the bark beetle. Hmm. There's native and non-native bark beetles. And it's primarily one of the non-native bark beetles that spreads it currently. Wow. So that complicates things a little bit because it's both natural and introduced processes that are kind of lending to an already... You might have mentioned it, I'm sorry, but this is an invasive fungal pest, right? This is something that was here and is, for some reason, been unlocked or unleashed. Yeah, yeah, it was introduced, non-native. It's thought to have come on burl logs that were would be made into furniture veneer around oh. 1930, okay. first identified in, in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So Ohio is kind of ground zero for our understanding of this, but also a lot of the work that's being done. That's a really interesting fact I did not realize. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting. So what happens now? So you have both native and non-native beetles that are vectoring this this fungal pathogen into the elms. I mean, was it something that kind of probably petered along for a while and then 
really started to show up once it gained pace or was it one of those things that was introduced here and just swept through really quickly and wiped things out kind of like the Emerald Ash Borer? Well, you know, I'm not sure that I can answer that very accurately. I've, That's okay. You know, everyone knows that it came over in about 1930 and I've read that the the non-native bark beetles, which are the primary vector today, is mm-hmm. the, the non-native bark beetles, even though there are native bark beetles that do spread it as well. But I read that they were introduced first. And so there was already this vector just waiting. I mean, not obviously not really waiting, <laughs> right. but was here. And then when uh, when the fungus was accidentally introduced, the vector was already spread throughout the landscape. Wow. And so the fungus had this uh, vector that could spread it fairly quickly. And what I've read is, um, you know, by the 70s, many millions of elm trees had died. But an important part of the story is that that was the first species of Dutch elm disease, Ophiostoma ulmi. Uh, in the mid 1900s, a more aggressive species, Ophiostoma novo ulmi, was introduced, and that killed many more elms and spread more quickly. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> huh. That's uh, new. I did not know. Th- I mean, new to me, I should say. It's not saying much, but yeah. wow, that's pretty intense. And so you already have a complicated situation where you have something going on that's already kind of invasive, but not necessarily like stand killing level. And then you have this primed and ready vector for another invasion and then another invasion on top of that. I mean, I think it's so easy to grab on to simple narratives in ecology because it's way easier yeah. to communicate those. But this is sounds... Absolutely already right out of the gates, a, a much more complicated and nuanced invasion story, which, I mean, it's ecology. What what can you really <laughs> expect, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think in that context, when we think of how the public kind of grabs onto these things, and I apologize if this is so out of left field in terms of like sociology of invasions, but do you think that lends at all to kind of the you mentioned it's it's more like the street tree version of how we perceive the loss of elms. But do you think that kind of complicates the story to the point where it's just harder to talk about and therefore maybe not as easy to get into the public conscious in a bigger way like the chestnut blight was? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the other piece of the, the picture is that there are still many millions of elm trees out there, unlike chestnut, because mm. elm uh, is so prolific. I mean, I you know, each tree can produce many thousands of seeds and they germinate readily and grow very quickly. It's really quite a weedy tree. (laughs) And so there's a ton of elm out there in the landscape and it can grow up and get fairly big before DED comes and kills it. Um, So unlike American chestnut, there's still a lot of elm out there. I mean, when when I'm out and some of my research plots, um, large elm trees, you know, upwards of 16 inches in diameter aren't rare to find. Hmm. It's the trees that are closer to two feet and three feet in diameter that are a lot more rare and, you know, potentially have some resistance to DED. Okay. So yes, it does. I think getting back to your question, I think because there's still so much elm out on the landscape, because it was really, you know, the street trees that we saw die, uh, I think there, there isn't that same feeling of urgency to Mm. restore the species as there is for chestnut or ash. Um, You just don't, you don't quite get the same. um, Some people question why we're putting resources toward American elm restoration. Hmm. 
That is interesting from a, a sort of sociological standpoint because it is almost like the public won't care until it's absolutely dire or catastrophic on that level, which is a shame. But I mean, even I kind of struggle with it because like you said, I can go out in the woods today and see an American elm, a slippery elm, mm-hmm. a winged elm. You know, it's not unheard of, but when I see a big elm, I know it's something special. You go, whoa, what's happening here? And so, you know, a, a tree that's that prolific, it, it kind of speaks to this idea that, okay, it may have to get to a certain size before it's really catastrophic, but at least there's some reproduction before it gets to that point. Whereas, you know, with a lot of other instant tree deaths, it's they're done before they even have a chance in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that does give us a chance you know, there's been adaptation happening over the past almost 100 years since mm. DED first came through. So that does give us the chance of finding trees that may have increased tolerance because of that, because they are still reproducing, hmm. unlike chestnut. And we'll see about ash. Yeah, I mean, and it complicates the narrative, but it also can make conservation a little bit more nuanced, which is always an exciting. It's not just we're fighting destruction <laughs> at the worst case scenario. Yeah, it's nice to have some hope in there, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hope is good, especially in conservation, because uh, we, we get too tied up sometimes in how dismal it, it can seem. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but, Absolutely. you know, from the street tree perspective, there's a reason Elm Wood, Elm Street, those sorts of things like we mentioned. Do you think it lended to this invasion issue that, you know, Elm was such a favored tree that it was just monocultured across the sort of suburban urban interfaces in in North America? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I mean, it was planted pretty much immediately when the Europeans colonized the U.S. because it reminded them of the English elm from Mm. back home that was beloved back there. So they planted elm in New England. And then as as the, you know, as they spread across the country, they brought elm with them all the way to the West Coast. Um, There's a really wonderful book recommend it. Republic of Shade. Oh, you can't see it. Sorry. That's okay. I'll send you the information <laughs> yeah. um, by Thomas Campanella. And he describes, you know, that network of American elms across the country as a verdant parasol of American elms. And it's just, he has this great imagery. Um, and that's exactly what happened. There was so much elm planted in monocultures, you know, just lines of American elm on either side of the street that when DED came through, um, the beetles went from tree to tree, and it's very likely that the the fungus was also transmitted via root grafts from tree to tree, just going right down the row. Dang. So you saw widespread mortality of these closely planted street trees. And that's one of the, the main reasons that you know, street trees are no longer planted in monocultures because of that story. Yeah, I mean, at least, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but lessons were learned. And I hear that in the conversations a lot more today. And, and it's really issues like the elm, the loss of elm that, that kind of woke us up to that. But I kind of, before we go into solutions to these problems and where your work really comes in, I kind of want to go back to what you said about the introduction of these fungi. And you hear about these quarantine measures about bringing living materials in, and people get really fired up about don't mix fruits, don't bring in agricultural things. And, and you know, the nursery trade gets this time and time again, and rightfully so. I mean, they're the source of a lot of invasive species, but this introduction wasn't necessarily from living materials, if I heard you correctly on that. Yeah, exactly. I, I came in on uh, veneer logs and possibly also elm 
crates used to to store fine china. Wow. So yeah, no, it was on dead elms that came in. I, you know, I think this was really before the time when they really understood just the danger of of trade. Clearly, they had some some experience with it with American chestnut and the blight that came in, probably on nursery stock, kind of as you referred to living material. But yeah, it was it was dead wood. Yeah, I mean, it's it's alarming and it's something to always keep in the back of the mind when it comes to like sustainable forestry products and what we're doing with living material or once living materials. I mean, even a crate or yeah. a veneer log could harbor something. And so these sort of phytosanitary processes need to go beyond just living material because Absolutely. you don't know what's still in that dead wood. There's a lot of things that live in dead wood. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, it's a good point. Noted. Yeah. But you're here today not to tell us all about the doom and gloom and, and sadness of the <laughs> loss of elms. I mean, your career and your research is living proof that there is options here and there's ways to mm-hmm. move forward and things being done to protect elms. Let's begin there. I mean, what when you first got into this, what was sort of the first steps and how much, I, I guess not how much, has it changed a lot since you really kind of started biting off chunks of research? Um, well, the thing with tree restoration is that it's very slow. <laughs> so, um, I've been in this position for about eight years and really maybe in the past three years, feel like I've really started to wrap my head around the issue and, and how to address it appropriately with a, a wonderful team of, um, colleagues and collaborators, et cetera. Um, but our approach is, is different from breeding for chestnut because we're not hybridizing with American elm. We don't need to do that. There seems to be enough natural resistance in certain American elm individuals that we don't have to hybridize with other species, other elm species. We can just pick the very best survivors. We call them survivor trees that Hmm. are out there on the landscape that are collaborators and the general public tell us about and propagate them plant them in field orchard type settings um, and then come back in a few years and inoculate them with a fungus and see how they do. And the trees that do well will keep and let them breed together and hopefully increase resistance. And the trees that don't do well will remove from the program. So it's actually pretty simple. It just takes a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, That juxtaposition between a a simple quote unquote approach, patient (laughs) approach, and that time factor. I mean, it would be one thing if you were working with an annual where you could get multiple generations in an entire growing season, but I will always throw my hat off and bow down to any woody plant breeder in this world, let alone someone doing it with sort of a, an urgency of conservation in mind because of the generation times. And it's inherent that we admire how old a tree can live, but they can really slow down or at least uh, put a, a damper on how quickly you can get results when you need to in the case of conservation, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I was talking to a a colleague, a collaborator who is not a scientist, but um, very interested in trees about that very issue. And she was describing our work as if we were working with Ents from Lord of the Rings, (laughs) just very slow moving, wise trees that move at their own you know, scale and there's nothing you can do or not much you can do to speed it up. So it can be frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, just, I I can't have enough respect for people that get in on that, but from the more biological side of things, 
you identify an elm tree that is large enough to potentially have some resistance there. What's the next yeah. step? I mean, where do you begin when a, a homeowner calls you and says, look, I've got this tree on my land. It, it's pretty old. looks pretty big. There could be something here. What What's the first process or part of that process? Sure. Well, first we ask them to submit their elm to the American Elm Survivor Database, which you can find online. Uh, and there we house... Uh, it's almost about a thousand survivor elms now that folks have submitted to that. We usually work with partners who will take scions. So they cut, you know, parts of the branches off of the trees when they're dormant, ship them to us overnight. And then we graft that cyan wood onto rootstock. So potted elms. And that's done usually in the very early spring when the cyan buds flush out and grow into new branches, we can take cuttings from those. You know, we just cut little pieces of the branches, stick them into some foam plugs, um, put them in a mist bed so they're getting constant water and they will develop little roots. And the ones that develop little roots, we transplant into little pots with soil. The ones that develop leaves from there, um, we will then put into bigger pots and grow up. And then those are the trees that we put into these field plantings that will eventually be inoculated. So it's very laborious. You know, <laughs> we have a team of uh, four technicians, three scientists who work nearly full time on this project. Wow. So, and we hire about four interns every summer. So it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Good work. We're really, really worthy work, but you know, you always got to keep in perspective what's going on. Now, when someone calls you, is it just one species of elm you're interested in, or do you kind of whatever they're throwing at you? If it's a native elm, let's give it a shot. I, I don't know what the susceptibility is is like from species to species. We're sticking with American elm for now, okay. uh, really. So we are a research entity. You know, our mission is to develop the research methods that then partners or collaborators or whoever state agencies can use in an operational fashion. Mm. So what what we're doing is we're fine-tuning our phenotyping. That's our ability to assess the tolerance or resistance of these different survivor elms, which is (laughs) a lot of work in and of itself. We are refining restoration protocol, how to get the trees back out onto the landscape. And in doing so, we are doing operational restoration on our specific population of American elm in the Midwest. But ultimately, what we want to get out of that is publications, manuals, guidelines that partners can use to implement similar programs uh, on a regional basis. Because we can't just develop 10 American elm that are resistant to Dutch elm disease and plant those across the country. (laughs) We need locally adapted populations of American elm throughout the range of the species that can be used for restoration. So we're talking landscape scale uh, (laughs) project. (laughs) Wow. I love that. Still no small task, even within a, a relatively contained geographic area, but yeah, serving as a model for applied conservation efforts has to feel so good as a scientist. I mean, to think about the data you're collecting and yeah, but (laughs) still, I mean, even not being successful is data, useful data for for a lot of people to build off on. And so being able to inform across the nation is very exciting. 
Yeah, it is exciting. It is exciting. And I should say it's only possible because we already have a network of amazing partners and collaborators. Like we work with the Nature Conservancy. We work with State and Private Forestry, another branch of the Forest Service, um, Forest Health Protection, part of the Forest Service. You know, we work with so many wonderful entities who are really excited about American Elm. So yeah, it makes it very gratifying. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good to hear someone that's really gratified by all of the efforts they're putting in for something like this. But, you know, the, the process you described of going from scion to graft to cuttings to rooted cuttings to getting in the ground. I mean, even that it's a straightforward sort of, I know what the next step is, but that takes a ton of time. And then you go mm-hmm. from getting something rooted in the ground up to being able to inoculate it with the fungus. I mean, start to finish, roughly speaking, very roughly speaking with an American elm. What's that process time-wise? So right now it's about 10 years. It's wow. a decade, Okay, which is, yeah, I mean, that's a third of a career. It's, <laughs> it's too long. <laughs> so that, that actually brings me to our kind of most recent line of research, which we're very excited about, and that's to develop a small STEM assay or a, a rapid assay, which you know would be to, to be able to inoculate potted elms that are a year old oh. and knock off maybe maybe five or six years of that decade-long program that I was talking about. Um, so that's something that we've been working on for about five years. And finally, this past year, we're having really good success in segregating the tolerance from susceptible elms hmm. by inoculating young trees. And it's all a matter of getting the timing right when you inoculate is so critical, um, which we've found out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was there any other way than the hard way with a lot of <laughs> no. <this> stuff? <laughs> no, but it's it it is fun. It's yeah. enjoyable. I mean, yeah. it, it's this perfect combination of conservation minded and also just curious scientists at play, yeah. right? There's there's definitely an element to that, and it's always good that on those tough days you keep that in the back of your head. It's all part of the process. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to have failures just to figure out what, you know, what you're doing wrong. And then um, you tweak something the next year and we've improved a little bit each year. And now I think we're pretty close. So that should, like I said, shave off about half or even more the amount of time it takes to, to test these trees we probably will still want to put the best trees um, that you know make it through this screening process, the small stem assay, into field plantings to test the best of the best. And then those field plantings will convert, hopefully, into seed mm-hmm. orchards if tolerance mm-hmm. is high enough or resistance. I'm using both of these terms because they have different definitions, but we don't know if it's tolerance or resistance with American elm. Oh. Um, so I'm sorry, I should stick no, to no, one, no. but I kind of go back and forth. But I do want to want to make a point that we're looking for increased resistance. We're not looking for trees that are immune to Dutch elm disease or even extremely highly resistant to Dutch elm disease, because really we're we're primarily interested in landscape scale rural elm restoration. Mm. So we can put a tree back out into the woods that's you know fairly resistant may still be impacted by Dutch elm disease. Some of its progeny undoubtedly will be impacted by Dutch elm disease. But if we get enough of those trees out into the woods, they're genetically diverse and they breed with each other, we'll kind of let nature continue the breeding work on its own. So a little bit different than at least what I've heard in the past from the American Chestnut Foundation, though I think they're changing now, um, given how complicated their, you know, their whole resistance story is. 
Um, but yeah, so we're not we're not shooting for a, a extremely highly resistant American elm. That being said, if we're talking about street trees, you're going to have to have the best of the best for yeah. cities because you can't have trees dying and falling <laughs> on cars and yeah. you know causing issues for homeowners and cities. Yeah. I really appreciate you bringing that up because it it brings this the, a lot of these generalized conversations that you see people not in the field having. It brings a little bit more nuance and perspective to that conversation because a city versus rural, very different scenarios would probably by just definition require different approaches, but this idea that we're going to eradicate invasive species and control it and get it back to how it was is such a false premise. And I don't know anyone yeah. worth their weight that's operating under that assumption. And so to hear this idea of just pushing them to the point where they have the edge over it is really yeah. refreshing. I think that's a really refreshing view to bring to the table because if you can let nature do a lot of the work for us, as you said, that alleviates a ton of work for us. There's no <laughs> other way to put it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And we don't really have a choice. It's so labor and time and money intensive to run breeding programs. And all of those things are extremely limited that that we have to, we have to find <laughs> ways to do this feasibly. Yeah. But you what you just said, it, it made me think of this moment, you know, I was probably um, about 25 sitting in a conference, I heard someone talking about invasive plant species. And it dawned on me, like honeysuckle is never going away. Like we're never <laughs> going to eradicate honeysuckle. And I know that that seems silly because of course we're not going to, but my naive young self thought that we could eradicate non-native invasive plant <laughs> species. And we just can't. And it was like this watershed moment for me just to realize we just have to manage it to the best that we can. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget. I was in the same boat. I, we're going to get rid of them all. We have to pull every last stem. And I remember a friend who was kind of leading me through this journey and he's like, yeah, we've done really good in this patch of forest. And then walked me to the boundary and pointed at the <laughs> neck. Oh crap. <laughs> you know, those moments that hit you like, oh, but we can work on landowner outreach, those sorts of things. So it becomes this, uh, this balance between idealism and practicality in a big way. Yeah. And I'm, I just love any time a scientist or a restorationist kind of like practices what they're preaching, I guess. And and that's, it's again, it's refreshing because we just, we have to be real about this. There's only so much time, effort, and money to go around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> and so from like a breeding perspective, I mean, letting nature take its course by getting enough critical mass of these tolerators out there is one thing, but you know, how... Am I wrong in assuming most elms are wind pollinated, right? Yeah. How would mm -hmm. you control that? Even in a very tightly regulated, it just seems so interesting to think of woody plant breeding from a wind pollinated, large old living tree species. Yeah, no, I mean, we can't control it. And especially because there is so much elm out there on the landscape. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be cross pollination and that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's going to slow everything down. A lot of the progeny between, let's say, the you know the wild type, the naturally occurring elm, and the trees that we plant out, a lot of the progeny will die over time. But you know the ones that will survive hopefully have some level of resistance. And I mean, we're talking over many, many, many years is kind of we're in it for the <laughs> the long haul. 
Yeah. So, I mean, what you're describing there really is just kind of guiding the process of evolution. And any tree, 99.9% of the seeds it ever produces throughout its entire, often multi-century life, are never going to make it anyway. But it's, again, giving those few that slight selective advantage so that hard selection turns into maybe soft selection in the long run. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's going to be slow, but I mean, I think the other, the other side of it is, you know, we're, we're restoring American elm because the species needs our help, but also because we need American elm to use, to restore ecosystems that are facing challenges. Um, you know, I think the the best example is EAB impacted wetlands and floodplains, particularly in the upper Midwest or um, New England. Uh, elm is the perfect species to plant back out on these sites with other species as well. Sure. We're not, we don't want monocultures of elm again. <laughs> We've learned that lesson, but uh, elm, it, it establishes easily. It's native to those ecosystems. It grows fast. It's shade tolerant. It can withstand a whole slew of different conditions. So it's really a, would be a wonderful species to put back into some of these sites that we need to capture uh, before EAB kills all of the ash. Right. Yeah. I mean, we just had your colleague, Dr. Knight on and and she kind of emphasized this idea that it's, you know, we care about this species. Our focus is the species, but they're also very important parts of these ecosystems. And when you yes. think of like the abundance of elms still, you know, you mm-hmm. think of just how much of an impact that the decline of that species must have had, whether we know or can measure it or have no idea at this point. And then, you know, I think about all of like the plant insect. I'm always reading about, oh, what can you plant for this butterfly or that? Like the amount of things that rely on elm, you can't tell me that there's not a huge ecosystem component to the loss of elm or the decline of elm in this context as well. So very refreshing to hear the ecosystem standpoint repeated yet again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there, you made me think of there are at least two different uh, Lepidoptera species that have evolved to look like American elm leaves. Oh, um, they have really cool little <laughs> ridges on their backs that look like the the serrate teeth of American elm. So you should look them up because they're they're kind of fun. So and I don't know the fate of those species. I mean, I'm sure they're fine because there's still a lot of American elm out there. But yeah, yeah. kind of cool. That's rad. Yeah. I mean, again, always kind of keeping into the context that single species conservation is important and that's kind of how we operate, but it is, is all in the context of ecology, the ecosystem and, yeah. and the things that rely on it. But is there work in place or at least ideas down the road to expand beyond American elm or is it just such a flagship species that we can learn a lot from this to apply to other species down the road? I think we're feeling pretty overwhelmed with the amount of work that's needed for this one species. I'm just speaking for my particular group. You know, we work with my supervisor, Dr. Jennifer Cook. She's amazing and is currently running breeding programs for three, actually many species, because ash has many species uh, lumped into that genus. So several species of ash, American beech, and now um, Eastern hemlock. So the Forest Service is involved in other species, but our particular group, I think we're going to stick with American elm. If we're successful with American elm, you know, our methods probably would, would work with red elm as well, slippery elm. But yeah, I think we feel like we have our hands full. I mean, the other, the other big, or the other piece of this puzzle that uh, our colleague, Dr. Charlie Flower 
is leading with um, our technician, Nancy Hayes-Plazoles, is Elm Yellows, which mm. is a phytoplasma. So oh, no. an entirely different type of species. I've heard it, I've seen it referred to as bacteria-like. Mm. So I'm not even, to be honest, sure exactly what a phytoplasma is, but it, <laughs> um, it, it can kill elm. There are many different phytoplasmas, some of which kill elm, some of which are not understood if they're pathogenic yet. They're incredibly hard to to study. You can't culture them. It's hard to, Mm. you can't really inoculate a tree with them. So that's Charlie's, (laughs) Charlie's challenge right now is, is dealing with phytoplasmas and how they impact our trees. So I think for now, just sticking with American elm is as much as we can handle, but maybe someday. (laughs) But again, just this idea of practicality and, and learning lessons, and then just being able to adapt those lessons to other species. There's, there's other yeah. people out there. There's, you never know what the next generation of scientists is going to produce. So no way, shape or form should this discredit the work that you are all doing in any way. And I really, really feel for you. And just hearing what you just said about, okay, we're working on ash. We also have some beach projects, hemlock. And now this other thing that's hit now, I mean, as someone that's doing practical applied conservation research, how do you stay hopeful? You know, is there nights when you lose sleep and other nights, like what keeps you able to go to bed and, and invigorates you to get up and do your work in the morning? Yeah, I think I, I have blinders on. <laughs> I mean, you can only <laughs> take in so much. I mean, honestly, really, yeah. it's true because you don't know what's going to come next. And undoubtedly, there are things that are going to come next and impact other species, maybe impact elm as well. You know, I mean, it's really scary. Um think just focus on what I can focus on and and try not to absorb too much of the other bad stuff that comes in because otherwise if you lose hope then you lose motivation (laughs) yeah I think too the other side of it for me at least as an outsider looking in is it's kind of like no effect is still good data to to talk about and talking about these issues whether there's good days I mean there's always going to be good days and bad days and there's still plenty of reason to be hopeful for Elm but these are cautionary tales and it's going back to kind of what we said about it's not just living material bringing in these are things we can always learn from and move forward with hopefully informing the way we trade and move things around the landscape yeah (laughs) in thinking about you know just the time frames involved here and you know, you are eight years into this position, but you mentioned kind of the decadal repeated scale, even despite the advancement that you're doing with getting these younger elms to be able to be inoculated. From what you've learned and what you've gathered in your time working as a scientist on these projects, you know, the next generation of scientists is going to be coming up. What kind of information or, or like kind of viewpoints or perspectives do you want them to have going into projects like this? Because like you said, th- this isn't the only time this isn't going to happen. This isn't the only species this is happening to. I mean, everyone can choose their own adventure and slice off their own chunk of this in different ways. But as sort of like the broad picture of conservation science in an applied way, what can you say to these next generation scientists and, and restoration practitioners that can kind of get them, I guess moving forward on some of this stuff or just keep with it. I don't know. That's a big one. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think people just have to be, you know, motivated by that long game. Uh, You have to understand what your, you know, the long-term objective is and then just figure out a way to, to make it happen. And things change. I mean, even in the eight years that I've been in this position, you know, resources are less than when I started the, Mm. the situation is, 
there's challenges that, you know, can be pretty stressful and, you know, we work with wonderful people. We all are really excited about this work. So I guess just find, find your group. I mean, that's what makes a big difference is, is working with, you know, a team of folks who are all really excited about this and love coming to work. I mean, no doubt we all get frustrated by things, but ultimately everyone's there because they want to be there and we all have this shared vision. So I think it's important to find, kind of find your group. I mean, not to be a downer, but it is, this type of research doesn't seem to be getting easier. Long-term research is hard to fund. Um, it's it's very hard to develop the type of networks and funding relationships that you need to to carry out decades-long studies. So yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have like a no, great. Um, it's reality. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. That's all I have for that. No, that's fine. All right. So with that in mind, it can be really frustrating. And obviously funding is its own can of worms to open up. But for the average listener, for someone that may not be going into the sciences or have an entirely different career that doesn't let them get involved in a direct way, how can the listeners that care about it and want to do something for this get involved or at least help with this process? Is there like a monitoring thing they can get on? You mentioned that uh, the Elm reporting that people can do. What are some recommendations you have for the average listener? Sure. So yeah, we have the American Elm Survivor Database um, online. If you Google that, it should come up. And you know, we're looking for large American elm trees, really trees that are two feet plus in diameter, you know, that likely have some level of resistance, unless they're just very lucky. Um, some level of resistance to Dutch elm disease. So submit those. You need to answer some questions about the location, et cetera. Um, and it's possible that we'll incorporate those trees into our program at some point. So that's wonderful. Um, if you're in New England, there's a wonderful group called Elm Watch nice. led by Tom Zetterstrom. And you can get involved. I think they're always looking for volunteers. Um, so a, a very great effort to restore elm locally to that area. That's awesome. I love sort of simple things that people can do as they're hiking around and looking. And I guess a sort of tangential question to that is with sort of the advancement of people carrying smartphones and using apps like iNAT or, or something like that, have you seen an increase at least in the amount of people saying like, hey, I might have something here? Or is it more like just getting the word out that that's what they should be looking for? So we're like at our limit in terms of like right now we're not onboarding new material, but we're almost to the point where we're going to work with other partners like state agencies we've started conversations with who want to start their own elm restoration programs mm. on a much smaller scale at least starting a little bit smaller than what we're doing and so they will want to see the trees that are submitted to the database and work with landowners to collect cyan etc from from their elms so that's our vision is to have this network of partners who are working together to develop these locally adapted populations of of resistant American elm. Awesome. So it sounds like regardless of where people are listening from, maybe don't submit them to the Northern Research Station, but know where your elms are, keep your ear to the ground and look for regional based approaches or, or people that are interested in this sort of stuff. So the online survivor elm database that we have, we supply the data or theoretically we will supply the data to those partners. Awesome. So people can submit them to that database 
And then once we're ready to implement these operational um, restoration partnerships, then we'll, um, we'll mine the data, the trees that have been submitted. Awesome. So just keep at it. Find those elms, report yes. those elms, and, and, and we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, one more thing is folks who are in New England, specifically Vermont, um, TNC is one of our biggest partners, and they have many plantings of American elm all up and down the Connecticut River watershed. And I think they are looking for volunteers to, to help um, with those elm plantings. Excellent. Well, this is awesome. A lot of things that people can do regardless of where they're living to at least have some input, some data submission. But uh, with that in mind, if there's any other resources that people can use to kind of keep their finger on the pulse of this research, your research and the research of your colleagues, but also the conservation movement across North America, where do you recommend they go looking? Well, would say there's there's a wonderful resource called Tree Search where you can find um, for free publications by any you know federal researcher. So any of our Elm publications are up there, and you can search them. Search my name or search Kathleen Knight or just American Elm, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you can find your papers. Um, again, you can find papers by any federal scientist and they're free. There's no paywall, which is Ooh. a really wonderful resource. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We should be celebrating that every chance we get. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Pincho, this has been fascinating. It is so encouraging to know that there is hope in there for Elms and that work is being done regardless of how slow it takes, but uh, really important work being done to save the species. And at least it's a species that's still reproducing and, and being represented on yeah. the landscape in some way. So I have walked away with this, uh, a lot more information and a little bit more hope for, for the elms. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your enthusiasm. It's, it's nice to, to hear that. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> always thanks. great to hear from the people doing it and making it a reality. So thank you so much for the work you're doing. Uh, I keep it up. I can't sing your praises enough. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Of course. <laughs> okay. Take care. All right, that wraps up yet another fantastic conversation. I thank Dr. Pincho for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us and, of course, for all of the amazing work she and her colleagues are doing to understand and restore the American elm. As we mentioned in our conversation, even if you go to bed feeling dismal about the state of things, there's always reason for hope, but also there's always lessons to be learned and applied moving into the future. Of course, all of the relevant links for this episode and all previous episodes can be found in the show notes for each episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And if you're enjoying the show and you would like to make sure it continues, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. I could not be doing it without the monthly support from all of the wonderful patrons we have over there. I thank them so much for their continued support. Also, if you want to pick up a copy of my book for yourself or for a loved one during the holiday season, consider going over to Mango Publishing's website, which you can find a link in the show notes, and picking it up from them. They, until the end of this year, are doing a 20% off discount on all books. They never really do that, so it's really exciting, and go take advantage of it because there's some really great authors published through Mango, and you're going to find something for someone in your life over there. Of course, you can also pick up merch at our Teespring store. And just as always, those links are in the show notes. But that is it for me this week. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.